You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 56. So we've done one year of the podcast to date. We've heard stories from doctors, teachers, custodians, some small business owners, and a host of others. So super interesting to hear all those stories and, and, and discuss some of the similarities. And of course, there's several differences in their stories and how they invest. We welcome any of you, any millionaire that would like to be on the show and to share your story. That's that's our goal of the podcast is to help share these stories and and get these everyday millionaires out there so that we can all learn from each other. So if you'd like to be on the show, feel free to reach out. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe. It helps us get the podcast out there, get new listeners, and help reach new millionaire interviewees. Last week's interview was Tom Wilwright, Robert Kiyosaki's advisor, tax advisor, and he provided some great advice on taxes and things to be aware of with this new tax law. We also have some exciting guest interviews coming up, including Jamie Masters, Chris Hogan, and Robert Kiyosaki. Next week's episode will be Cuber. He has a net worth of $1.4 million, and he has some investments in real estate, some Airbnb experience, some money invested in financial securities. He has two kids, and overall, he's a pretty frugal guy. So on today's episode, we have Jake, and Jake is in his early 40s. He's got a net worth of $3.3 million, and that's spread amongst a house at about $700,000. he has got a little bit in cash, a little over $100,000. he has got a couple million in some retirement accounts, uh, another $175,000 in a taxable account. He's got about three hundred fifty set aside for his, his children's education fund, and $200,000 in a rental, and another sixty k in some e-REITs. And we get into the discussion with him about an angel investment and a donor advised fund as well that he has earmarked um, for charity that he's got about 375k. One of the interesting things about Jake is he has four children, uh, nine and under, and we haven't had somebody on the on the podcast yet with that many with that many children. And a lot of people have reached out to us, um, you know, privately on our email and in other means on Facebook and stuff. That you know, how do you do it with a child or two children or three children, four children at daycare and stuff. And, and we understand that it's very difficult. Um, but Jake will be one to, to kind of guide you through that and how he's been able to do it. And, uh, currently Jake works as a pharmacist and his wife is a physician. So they definitely have a great income. Anyway, we get into discussion about how Jake's kind of navigated his journey living in the high cost of area of the country and so without further ado, let's get into the episode with Jake. Jake, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm, I'm 41 years old. Um, I'm married. Uh, I've been married for uh, 13 years. Um, I'm currently a pharmacist uh, by training. Um, I, I work for a pharmaceutical company and uh, my wife is a physician uh, by training. And we have uh, four children under the age of nine, uh, three boys and a girl. We live in the, the northeast part of the country, and uh, we both of us are born and raised uh, in this town. Cool. And what is your net worth today? Well, 
after this week, it's dropped significantly. <laughs> um, the market has, has dropped a lot. Uh, so it's about uh, today. It's about three point three million, a little north of that. But it, it's been down. It's down about one hundred and eighty thousand from earlier in the week. I think it was. Yes, this is probably one of the first first big pullbacks we've had yeah, in, in, a, in a very long time, especially yeah. probably since since you became a, a multimillionaire. So, how is that broken up? Yeah. So, um, do you want percentages or, or dollar amounts? I'm fine either way. Yeah. yeah either um, or. Either or is fine. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in cash, we have about a hundred and fifteen thousand in cash. Retirement is, is where we have a bulk of it. It's about two million in retirement accounts, and that's you know traditional IRAs, four hundred one ks, rollover IRAs, Roth, SEP IRAs. We have a defined benefit pension plan. And so, so that equates to about in taxable, we have one hundred and seventy-five thousand, and that's mostly in index funds, and that's just with you know Fidelity brokerage account. We have a Wealthfront account. Um, I also included our five twenty-nine plan. So, with the four kids, we've saved up so far about uh, three hundred and fifty thousand um, between the four kids. Our primary home is about seven hundred thousand. I have one rental property, which is about two hundred thousand, and then a couple of. Um, a couple of the uh, e-reits through these crowdfunding platforms, um, which is another sixty thousand. So, in, in in rental and e-reits, it's totaled about two hundred and sixty thousand there. I, I do a couple of these uh, angel investments with some companies, so I have about twenty thousand there. And I also included um, our vehicles, which is about fifty-four thousand. What I didn't include in the net worth, um, we have a donor-advised charity for donor-advised fund through Fidelity. And um, we have about three hundred and seventy-five thousand in there, but we didn't. I didn't. Inc- I don't include that in my net worth because it's already earmarked for, for charity. Awesome. So you're kind of all over the place here. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I've been experimenting with a with a bunch of things, but for the most part, I mean, if you take a look at percentages, a lot of it's in the market in index funds, low cost, you know, index funds. Sure. So yeah. for your retirement accounts as well, that's the majority, right? That two million is that all on yeah. index funds as well? Yeah, yeah, it's mostly in, in index funds. A lot of it is in in Vanguard, BT, BTSAX is probably a, a bulk of it. Some international funds, not too many bonds. I, I would probably say my mix across the entire portfolio, retirement and taxable, is probably in 90% stocks, 10% bonds, if that. Um, it's very, very aggressive, which is why <laughs> it dropped a lot this week. But I'm not, I'm not too worried about it because uh, I'm in it for the long run. And of that two million, do you know how much was your gain and and how much was your initial contribution? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know because it's been over the course of thirteen years, um, so it's mostly gains. I mean, I, I went in there the other day because um, I was looking to reallocate some funds, and uh, even with the market drops, it's still showing my total gain. My total gains, you know, th- that that it's still positive. Um, I just don't know how much of that is is gains. Okay, gotcha. So yeah. we'll dive into kind of each of these individually, but uh, first I want to ask about your your cash. You said you hold about one hundred and fifteen thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so is that your? I mean, it's obviously more than your emergency fund would be. Are you holding that for a specific reason? Are you waiting for an opportunity, or how do you kind of determine how much cash you're holding and and when you're going to deploy or use that? Yeah, we typically don't keep a lot of cash. I mean, it, it is it it is a significant amount right now. A lot of that is it, so. A lot. So my wife, we we try to live on off of one income. Uh, my income, so my wife's income, we try to keep. Um, and uh, 
we put money into a defined benefit pension plan every year that we've created for for her. She's she's a 1099 contractor, but we've created a business around it. So um, we have a defined benefit pension plan, which allows us to set aside a significant amount in retirement pre-tax. So a lot of that cash actually is earmarked for that defined benefit pension plan. So at the end of the year, we kind of do some calculations with the accountant. And um, a lot of that cash, quite frankly, is going to be moved to a retirement account. Um, so that it's sitting there right now. So it looks like a lot, but we typically don't keep that much in cash. It's just because it's uh, it's earmarked for, um, you know, once we do the end of the year accounting, a lot of that's going to go towards that defined benefit pension plan. Gotcha. Yeah. So how did you determine, right, since you're all over the gamut here, how did you determine that's what your allocation was going to be? How long did you grow up learning? Did your parents teach you about personal finance? Did your wife know about personal finance? How did that allocation come to be? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it was a kind of a kind of a long time coming. I, I kind of learned on my own, I, I'll say probably in the late 90s. Um, right around the time the Roth IRA was implemented, I remember, you know, I was kind of in my early 20s and I was still in college and pharmacy school, didn't have an income, so didn't really care too much about personal finance. But I was living at home, commuting to, to college, and my mom was watching Susie Orman on the TV and she was talking about the Roth IRA and she showed some of the compound interest calculations. You know, you set aside a certain amount every year and you can become a millionaire by the time you're 65. And my my mom showed me and got me interested. I started to do the calculations, and and really, when you when you take a look at how compound interest works, it really is you know the the eighth wonder of the world. So I, it started from there, and then I started to just consume a lot of personal finance information. And once I started working, I, I tried to set aside as much as I could, uh, you know, try to max out my 401ks and live off the rest. You know, dabbled in a bunch of things early on, made a bunch of mistakes. You know, tried individual stocks for a while, especially during the dot com bubble. None of that really worked out. And then over time, I transitioned into, you know, reading a lot of Warren Buffett, Vanguard, uh, you know, reading the Boggleheads form, you know, moving into low cost index funds over the course of the years. Um, so it's kind of self-taught, but the genesis of it was probably, you know, in the, in the late 90s um, with, with my parents. Cool. So you had this rental property. Did you buy that property in cash? So it's it's a paid for property. We didn't. Uh, so so I bought that property in 2003 uh, for personal use. It was my primary home. I was out of. It was one of my earlier jobs, and uh, it's a it's a townhouse, and I lived there for uh, about three years. We needed to move because my wife uh, got a residency in a different state, um, and so I had an I had an option to either sell the property or keep it. And I decided and rent it out. So I decided to keep it and rent it out. And um, and that's what I've done. Um, at the time, this was in the early 2000s, I had bought that property with 5% down. They gave me a 15% line of credit and then an 80% mortgage. But over the course of 13 years, I was able to pay down the entire thing. So, so now it's a paid for property. And, and how would you say the performance is on that property in terms of, you know, the rental income yeah. and the time that you're spending on it and everything else? Yeah, it's, that's something I still struggle with. I, I I don't think the rent is as is, is high as I, I want it to be. Uh, I think the market probably calls for a slightly higher rents. I have good tenants. I've, I bought another rental property in 2007 and sold it in 2014. It was just a nightmare. Uh, quite frankly, I'm, I, I just don't – the time that it takes to manage a property, the, the headaches involved, uh, I don't see myself expanding my rental portfolio. This this property that I have right now is, is a relatively newer property, so I don't have many issues with it. I have good tenants. I don't hear from them uh, at all. Uh, the rent comes in. I'm probably only netting 
you know, on on the two hundred thousand dollar property, I think probably I'm netting a thousand bucks a month. I don't know. I've always thought about whether I should just sell it and do something else with it, rather than having to manage it and, and deal with all this stuff. But um, I keep it because it, it helps me diversify a little bit. I mean, I probably otherwise would have had that money in the market, <laughs> and uh, I just don't want. I, I don't want my allocation to be too heavy in the markets, which is why I have a, you know, I, I still keep that rental and some e-reads. Yeah. Do you manage that property yourself then? I do. Yeah. It's about 30 minutes away from where I currently live. And I have, again, I haven't had too many issues with it. I've had it since 2003. I've started renting it out in 2006. So I've been renting it out for 12 years and, and I've, I've had to do a number of, of things to the house. I had to, the roof was leaking. I had to go up there and replace, you know, had some guy replace the roof and had toilet issues. Um, I've had to, the water heater burst and that, that created a bit of a mess. And so it, but now, you know, everything's kind of, re- all the guts are kind of replaced. I had to replace the furnace. So everything is newer. So again, I haven't had issues for a few years now, but I, yeah, I, I tend to manage it myself. And did you say that you have your uh, personal residence paid for or paid off? No, I don't. I still keep a mortgage intentionally. I mean, obviously, I, I, I can probably pay that off. But I have about a on a seven on our it, the home is valued at around seven hundred thousand. There's probably two hundred and fifty, or no, I'm sorry, three hundred thousand left on the mortgage. But the rate is so low. I think my uh, my rate is probably at three percent, and and with the tax deduction, you know, you're looking at an effective two percent interest rate on the mortgage. Um, so it is it is a low interest rate. So I just tend to keep the mortgage. Uh, I'm not worried about it. I think I have another nine years left on it anyway. So by the time uh, I'm 50, um, it should be paid for. And, and actually, it's, uh, coincidentally, that's the first year my oldest is starting college. So it'll be a nice transition from, you know, getting rid of the mortgage to now having to pay for college. Um, so hopefully I'll have enough in these 529s by then. So we'll see. Yeah. How did, how did you determine how much house to buy relative to your income and where you live and everything else? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question. Again, I think I think back when we bought the house in 2009, you know, my, my wife had just finished her residency. So she was making a decent income. I was making a decent income. Again, I didn't I didn't want to live off of two incomes. So we did look for a property where we could live off of off of one income. So, so that's kind of how we looked at at the home. Um, in terms of what we were, what we want, what we wanted, what we wanted to buy, and what we could afford, was really looking at, you know, at what house can we live in, you know, where if one of us lost our jobs, we would be okay. So, so that's kind of how how we we kind of approached home buying, and and we've been in the house for nine years, and we don't see ourselves moving ever. So we kind of like this area, our, our families are close by, so um, that was our approach. And what's your advice to someone who's who's thinking about buying or renting? What would you tell them to consider in a rent versus buy decision? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, so I, th- I think with 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 home buying, I think it's a forced savings plan. So in addition to the interest that you pay, which is essentially lost, um, you are setting aside money every single month into equity in your home. And uh, so and and it's and usually home prices appreciate, you know, relative uh, equivalent to uh, inflation. So two to three percent every year historically is what we've seen. So so I feel like it's a nice way to force savings versus renting. The other thing, too, is, you know, really, where do you want to set your roots and are you going to be there in the long term? So, you know, if you're only going to be there for a few years, the transaction cost alone in, in buying and selling real estate 
um, really is cost prohibit- prohibitive. So for us, you know, we knew we were going to be in this area for a long time. And uh, it, so it made sense for us to buy. Um, but, you know, if, if someone is more mobile and can move, um, if, if, an op- if a job opportunity opens up in another part of the country, then I think renting might be the better option. And then the last thing, for again, as I mentioned earlier, is really not buying, uh, overbuying a, a house or, or even a, even a rent, uh, even an apartment or, or a condo, you know, buying something within your means. You know, if you're married and, and you're dual income, you know, really trying t- to live off of one and, and save save the other income because you never know what's going to happen with the job markets and things. So you really want to be sure that uh, that, you, that you're living within your means. So so that's kind of my, my thoughts on renting and buying. Yeah. Yeah. I know for some people, they think about it. And, and we've had a, a couple guests on that are adamant one way or the other. One person said, you know, I shouldn't have bought a house. I was able to save more. The other person says, oh, I wish I would have rented or I'm, you know, it's the best thing I ever did was to buy a house. And so people feel different ways about it. Yeah. I mean, so I, I as I mentioned, uh, you know, we moved to a different state for three years when my wife, when my wife has a, had a residency. And this was in 2006, so this was the height of the real estate market. And what would have made sense was would be for us to have rented at the time, but you know home prices were appreciating so so fast during the 2006-2007 timeframe. I thought it was a win-win to buy a place, so we bought a place. But in three years, the market had already crashed. It was 2009, and the house was valued less than what we paid for. But we had to get rid of it, and it wasn't a it wasn't a property I wanted to rent out. Thankfully, I got a new job which offered a relocation package, which so they paid for uh, up to twenty five thousand in real estate losses for home sales. So it made up for some of it, but we lost a little more than twenty five in the value of the home. So, um, so, so, so to your point, yeah, I mean, um, I, I think you know you really have to take into consideration how long you're going to be in an area because the transaction costs and and just the fluctuations in the market. You just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you on that. So I want to go back to this 2 million in retirement. How much of that is in Roth versus traditional? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say I'm just estimating here right now. Let me just pull this up. It's probably 600,000 in Roth accounts and the rest are probably in more traditional SEP 401k rollover IRA accounts. So that's probably the breakdown. Okay. So maybe 75% in traditional, give or take 70%. Yeah. 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 Do you ever worry about required minimum distributions? I do. If you keep adding? I, you know, that's, that's something I, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Um, so there's a couple of things that I've been reading about. Uh, I, I think, I think you can give some money to charity in retirement and I think it counts towards, um, your RMD, so I thought a little bit about that. The other thing I thought about was doing some Roth conversions um, in retirement, or if I do, if I have early retirement, where when my income is lower, so I wouldn't get a, a huge tax bill to convert some, you know, pre-tax money into into Roth accounts. Those are really the only strategies I have right now. I'm open to any, anything new, but um, I, I do worry about that because um, there is a lot sitting in there, and it's only gonna, it's only gonna. Uh, be more because we, we keep adding a lot to the traditional side every year. Yeah. Is that kind of the plan going forward to continue saving aggressively into the traditional side or, or either side? You know, so our, my my strategy so far has been to take advantage of tax deferred and tax advantaged accounts as much as I can. And so, which is why we don't have a whole lot in taxable, quite frankly, um, relative to, to retirements. 
I, I like the fact that I can defer taxes for a long time or, you know, um, so, so that's, that's our plan. I mean, I, I max out a 401k. I do what's called a mega backdoor Roth, uh, which, which allows me to set aside up to twenty five thirty thousand in a Roth every year. My wife's entire salary goes towards this defined benefit pension plan, which is allows us to save about six figures in a pre-tax benefit uh, uh, pension plan. So we try and take advantage of all these tax advantage accounts before um, we put anything into a taxable account. So the plan, at least in the near term, is to continue to continue to do that, knowing that again, point I got to figure out something with this with this required minimum distribution piece um, at some point in the future. But that that's the plan. Yeah. Is there any is there any point? You know, I don't know. Maybe forty five or fifty or fifty five, where you say, "Hey, maybe I'll take the foot off the gas in terms of my savings rate and retirement accounts." Or just in general? I don't know. See, I mean, I, I think we, um, so we, that's one option. And then we would have a lot coming through after tax and putting into taxable account. I, 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 again, I, I still think tax deferred is better than taxable. So we continue to do that. There's nothing that we're lacking in terms of anything that we need. So we don't really need the money that we're putting into these retirement accounts. So the plan is to continue to do that. Um, Hoping to retire early, and we can figure, I, and then I can figure out kind of how to pull out some of that money in early retirement. There's a couple of different strategies where you're able to pull it out before the age of 55. So there's some options there. Um, so I'm thinking through all of that, but I think in the short term, um, I'm going to continue to 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 take advantage of of these tax deferred accounts. Do you have a date or or an age where you're kind of looking at early retirement? No, not really. I mean, I, in my head, I guess I'm, I'm ballparking 50. But um, again, I have four children, and uh, the, my oldest starts college when I turn 50, and they're all going to be in college throughout that decade for me. So from 50 to 60, they're all going to go through college. Some of them, some of those years are going to be um, two two tuitions. I don't know if I'm going to have enough in 529 accounts and we would like to help pay for some of that so um for their colleges at least undergrad so we'll have to we'll have to see if if i can retire early again i, I like my job too so I, I don't know what i would do in retirement so i like the job so and and the other thing too quite frankly is um health benefits i mean to pay for to pay for health insurance um in the open market for a family of six is very expensive. I looked it up one time. Um, so it's nice to have that subsidized by my employer. Um, that's the other piece too. So we're thinking through all of it. We don't necessarily a desire to retire early, even though we can. So we'll have to see in a few years. Yeah, the healthcare piece is a mess right now. A lot of the uh, the other millionaires we have on right now are, are talking about that and you know don't know which route they're going to take or how it's going to be when they get there or if they're already there at retirement, how they're going to solve that problem. So anyway, an interesting thought. Yeah. When did you start funding your uh, your kids' education funds? Right when they were born. I ever since I've seen these compound interest calculators, it's just changed my perception about when to begin investing. Which the answer is as early as you can. So right when my kids were born, I opened up five twenty nine accounts, and for my older kids, you know, we were able to to cash flow a lot every month into their accounts. At one point, I think it was last year. I, I had a bunch in taxable accounts, and I thought to myself, my goal is to pay for the 
the kids' colleges. Let me pull out some, pay for some of that capital gains, and let me transfer some of that into the kids' 529 plans where it'll be tax-protected and uh, it'll never be taxed again, the gains. So I did that, which was which was a huge benefit. So, so now I, I put a small amount every month um, into the kids' 529 plans. Um, and I recently, I actually, because of the market downturn, um, I had some money sitting in a taxable account and some bonds. So I just transferred that to... Um, the uh, 529 plans yesterday, actually, just to take advantage of buying buying at the uh, bottom of the market here, or hopefully the bottom. <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> yeah, you never know. So, Jake, I want to ask you about the, the FIRE movement. So, our listeners don't know, financial independence, retire early, it's kind of taken a big thing the last few years. And a lot of these guys say, hey, my goal is to get to 1.2 or 1.5 million or maybe two is their number and, and to retire early. And recently, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Susie Orman came out and said, oh, you know, that's not enough. You got to have 10 million. So I'm, I'm just curious what your take on it. You're at 3.3. You were to work a couple more years, you'd be at four. You could pay off the mortgage on your home. You could, If you followed the 4% rule, you could take out 150000 a year. You have money saved up for your kids' education funds. Is is that at all appealing to you? Or, or you kind of mentioned you get bored if you stopped working and you liked your job. But what's your thoughts on the FIRE movement and, and maybe when is enough enough? Yeah. I thought about this too, and I saw the headlines about Susie Orman. I didn't realize she said you need million. Um, but um, yeah, no, I'm I'm all for the fire movement. I think the retire early piece, I think, really depends on the person and what they want to do. I, I like the FI part of of fire. Um, I think I feel like for now, we're financially independent. I mean, if we if we needed to stop working, we we probably could i don't think we would want to right now uh, it would still be a bit of a stretch because a lot again a lot of our accounts are tied in retirement accounts so just being able to pull it out where the age of 59 and a half is there, there's some strategies there but um it's something i, I don't want to do so as i look at my net worth now 3.3 million I, I don't have a target in mind um we've been averaging about three four hundred thousand uh, increases in our net worth uh, every year um last year it was it was significantly more just because of the market I don't know if I get to five million, I, maybe I'll reevaluate. But I think I might have said that even, you know, back when I was uh, when I had a million in net worth, and I said oh, maybe maybe two would be nice or three would be nice. So I don't know. Well, see, I don't have again, I don't have a net worth in mind. Um, I I do follow. I do think about the four percent rule and what we would need. I think we want to live comfortably. You know, I think we want to be able to when we retire, you know, travel and and do all those types of things and. But again, I don't know what we would do with our our time. We like our jobs, so we'll just continue to kind of keep doing what we're doing. That's that's sort of the plan. Awesome. I want to dive in, just kind of switch gears here and dive into some of the crowdfunding and angel investing you've done. Maybe talk briefly about which platforms you've used, how much mm-hmm. you put into those, and and how the results have been. So I've been reading a lot about the crowdfunding. Looked at a couple of the platforms like like Fundrise in particular. And uh, Realty Mogul, which both of those offer the e-reads. I, I know I probably shouldn't have them in taxable accounts just because of the the uh, the way the taxes work. But um, I, I never pulled the trigger on 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 any equity deals or any debt deals on any individual properties. Um, for me, that just I don't know. I just don't know how to evaluate the properties well enough to to make those types of decisions. So I thought e-reads would help me diversify a little bit better across multiple properties. And they've been decent. I mean, they they give me a nine percent returns, uh, I believe. Um, but again, you know, I get I get taxed on that. Um, I think at the income tax level. So it's, I'm debating on whether to keep it or not. Um, the the platforms are nice. They 
you know, but I think in terms of being able to pull out on like a publicly traded REIT, um, I think is challenging. So I'm, I'm looking at whether or not I want to keep it in there. Angel investments, I use uh, AngelList. And again, I'm not savvy enough. I'm not, uh, you know, savvy enough to evaluate startup companies. I'm not a shark. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, so what I tend to do, they have this, uh, this option to syndicate deals with either individuals who know what they're doing or with venture capital firms. And so I've partnered with a venture capital firm. I, I kind of like their philosophy and their strategy with evaluating um, deals and they have good deal flow. And so, um, and AngelList allows, it's almost like crowdfunding. You, you don't have to put in a significant amount. You can put in, you know, a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks, up to 10,000, 15,000 into any company. So I, I send I've been syndicating deals with a venture capital firm. Um, so I think I have about nine or 10 deals right now. Two of them had already exited, meaning, um, the companies were uh, acquired by uh, larger firms. So I had some decent returns on one. After about a year and a half, um, I think I had 45% return on that. And this is after the fees and the carry, which um, you know, which which are are taken by the venture capital firm and taken by the platform. So it was a decent return there. The other exit wasn't as as big. I think it was a high single digits or something like that in terms of a return after one year. Um, but it's just these things that I'm doing now. I mean, sometimes you know, I kind of get bored of the just the index funds, which this, I'm just dabbling in it, but it's it's really not a significant, you know, my net worth. I think in angel investments, it's 1% of my net worth and, and the REITs is probably, you know, 2 or 3%. So it's not a significant amount. Gotcha. So maybe across all those platforms, you have 100,000 or so? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about 80,000 80, across okay. REITs and angel investments, something like that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're being humble, 45% return. <laughs> It's pretty darn yeah, good, right? Yeah, it, well, it, it's good. I kind of wish I put more in there. It wasn't a significant. Again, it wasn't a significant. Yeah, yeah. Significant amount. It's, it's just to keep things exciting, you know, um, rather than doing the index funds. But again, it's not. It's not sure. a whole lot of my portfolio. I'm never going to, you know, make a killing off of these things. But it's just, it's fun. It's fun to watch these companies, see how they're doing. You know, it's and, you, and we get quarterly reports on, on how the company's doing. So it's, it's fun in that regard. Gotcha. Have you invested in HSA? I do. I just started. I, I, my companies had never offered a high deductible health plan until I recently changed employers. And, um, and my current employer offers a high, high deductible health plan. So I started to set aside money in, in HSA. I've always wanted to take advantage of the, the triple tax advantage of, of an HSA. So, so now I can. So there's not a whole lot in there um, because I just started with my employer a few months ago. But I intend to, to kind of keep that and grow that over time. Awesome. So I want to switch away from kind of the investing and, and allocation piece of it and, and talk about your blog and, and the family piece of it. So you run a blog called Finance for the Family. As you mentioned earlier, you have four kids married. How have those kids and how has your family played into your financial decisions? I know you said before the call, you mentioned your wife worked full time. Once you had your second kid, she moved to part time. How have, Just kind of talk about that dynamic and, and how your family has played a piece in your investments. Um, so we never thought we would have four kids. They all just came. Um, but, uh, you know, after our, our first kid, um, my wife continued to work full time and, and we, we live close to family. So it was nice that we, we that was intentional. We just, um, we, our, our family is able to help out with watching the kids and things like that. And so my in-laws are retired so and, and they're young enough where they're able to, to come and watch the kids. So we never really had to pay for, for daycare, which was, again, intentional. And it's a, it's, we were blessed to, to have her parents um, 
retired so they can watch them. So the, when our first kid was born, my wife continued full-time work. When the second one came, um, it, it, it got to be a little much with just taking care of, of the kids, you know, when they were very young. So um, at that time, we looked at our finances and, and we thought about it and um, we decided that we would be she one part-time and again I, I don't have that option in my job and she she does she works she does shift work so she has the option and she wanted to do it um and so after our second kid was born she went part-time and uh it's it's worked out extremely well um for for us where she's able to maintain her her expertise uh, in the job um and on the part-time basis, but also being able to to help out a lot uh, at home, and um, and so you know then we had our our third kid in 2014, and more recently in 2016 we had our fourth. So it's it's makes for a very busy household. And and one thing I didn't anticipate, quite frankly, not that we have to do these, but like all the activities that the kids have, not only from a time perspective but a cost perspective. You know, they're they're doing a number of different activities and. And uh, that's something I never really thought about um, and, or budgeted for. So that's something I had to do um, more recently is kind of think about, you know, when when these lump sums have to go out to pay for these activities, how do I budget for them a little bit better? Um, and I know it's only going to grow because my youngest is not even in any activities, but I imagine he will be at some point. So so it's been, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a challenge, but but we're kind of working through it. And I think part of that, I think part of the reason why we're able to do it is, is intentionally we 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 early on we decided we were going to try to live off of the one income so we always know we have a backup in case we need it with my wife's income um so that so that always helps awesome what's your uh, we've kind of talked about this as of late with a few of the other millionaires we've interviewed what's your plan for generational wealth or, or do you think about leaving your kids inheritance have you figured that out yet it's a good question we're meeting with our uh, attorney on tuesday to update the will we have have been updated in, in a couple of years, and we just talked about this the other day. And um, I, yeah, I, we got to figure this out because we don't necessarily believe that we should leave them this large sum of our estate. Um, we just don't think it's it's healthy for for young younger folks to have this kind of money just sitting there in terms of just motivation. So we're kind of thinking through how do we stagger some of this or. Do we give more of it to, to charity? And again, we give a lot to charity right now, but do we give more of it um, of our state to charity at some point in the future? Um, I think we'll, we'll we'll have to see. I, I again, I think I take the approach that you know when you take a look at Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg, I think they're giving a lot of their money away to charity. I imagine that's probably where we're headed, um, assuming our, our kids are okay. But uh, you know, for, for now, um, I guess we haven't necessarily thought of a, a specific plan. But that's kind of where our heads are, is we probably more than likely are going to give a lot of this away to charity or think of a way to maybe distribute this out across generations rather than just our our children. Um, so we'll have to see how we can structure that. That's another option. So I don't know. Uh, we're still kind of working that working through that. Yeah, yeah. I think the decision's probably always in progress, at least I imagine to be. I don't have any kids yet. But what are you doing to teach them about money and investing? Yeah, it's funny. I had this. I had this conversation with my oldest the other day. He's starting to get. He's starting to understand the concept of money. Um, my my goal with him is to really try and get a good understanding of, of compound interest. I I mentioned it several times on on this call. It, it just really changed my perspective on saving and investing. Um, you know, once I saw 
once I did the math on it, quite frankly, I had to do I had to do the math myself to see if this was real, back <laughs> back when I first learned about it. And it's really lear- earning interest on your interest and the growth curve, and it's just it's just an amazing thing. So my goal is to to sort of be able to teach them that. So right now I, I do talk about you know why things are when they ask for something. You know we we do talk about the value of a dollar and what that means. They, my oldest is nine, so he doesn't work or anything like that. And we don't tend to buy our kids a whole lot of things outside of their birthdays and, and Christmas and things. Um, so we do ask about, you know, where do you think money comes from and all of these things, um, how things are priced, why do they, why are they priced that way? Um, you know, my son was asking more recently about home prices and, and, you know, why home prices are so high and why some people can't afford it. And we, we talk through some of that. You know, I asked him to pretend he's a builder, and if he's building a home for a hundred thousand, how much would he sell it for? <laughs> and he, he tells me, he tells me a thousand bucks. I just don't think he got the concept. I said, "Oh, you're willing to lose, <laughs> you know, ninety nine thousand dollars." <laughs> then he then he thought about it and said, "No, I guess not." Um, so we're having these conversations on a regular basis, um, especially with my again with my oldest one who's nine, just because he's starting to understand the concept. So um, so I'm hoping to teach them all the things that I've learned. And hopefully teach them early so that they don't make any of the same same mistakes I made. Awesome, awesome, good for you. We'll dive into those mistakes in a sec. I just want to get into these uh, these rapid fire questions real quick here. So, sure. uh, mo- most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Uh, probably forty dollars, forty five. I don't I don't buy too many too many jeans or pants, quite frankly. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about shoes? Most expensive pair of shoes? Oh, shoes. Yeah, I I do have a pair of seven hundred dollar shoes. All right. Most expensive car? Uh, it's probably our SUV. Um, it's, uh, I think, 65000 Okay. Most expensive meal out that you've paid for? It was probably for my 40th birthday. Um, it was a bunch of friends. Probably ended up costing us north of $2,000. Okay. What item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? We've started to spend a little bit more or include a little bit more in our budget for vacations. We just think that's we don't tend to buy a whole lot of things uh material things but we want to be able to travel and see the world with our kids so that's been a huge goal of ours so um so we're planning trips every year international so so that's certainly important to us awesome and what's not worth the money or what are you trying to really save on uh home improvement i (laughs) think <laughs> this is something my wife and I don't see eye to eye on a whole lot of times. I just don't see the value or the return on a lot of the home improvement stuff that we're doing. But uh, we we do some just uh, so that we uh, we have a happy house. Um, but I just don't <laughs> see the value in a lot of the, the home improvements. Okay, what was your high school and college GPA? High school was I don't know probably three point seven. College was three point seven something like that. Okay. Uh, we talked about predicted uh, retirement age a little bit and net worth. What what was your range of income through your working life, as much as you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, early on, uh, probably the lowest in the early 2000s household income was probably 100000 um, But now it's probably north of 500000 Do you know what age you became a millionaire at? Yeah, I think it was uh, – I, I track my net worth – pretty regularly um, for the past 11 years. So um, I can probably tell you the day. Uh, it was early 2012. So I think I was probably 35, 34. I hadn't yet turned 35. So basically you, you, you got there in give or take five, six years. I got there. Can you repeat that question? I apologize. Did you basically get to from, from nothing to millionaire status in about five to six years? 
Well, I started working at, at the age of 25, so it took about nine years for me um, to get there from 25 to 34. Okay, so you had a bunch saved up before you got married then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, so what, what, what are the mistakes that, that you've made that you would advise others not to make? And then and, and kind of rope that in maybe with some of the advice that you would give somebody who's just starting out or, or wanting to get on the path. Index investing always sounds boring, but I've seen the data on this, and I'm sure a lot of the FIRE community has as well in terms of actively managed funds and in and, and beating the market as well as just how many um, are able to do that over a long period of time, like over the course of 20 years. And, and when you see that data, it's so compelling that index funds are the way to go. So it's not very sexy or it's not very exciting, which is why I think early on I started to dabble in stocks and and I started to chase the bubble. So uh, I, I would highly recommend people don't buy stocks unless they have the time to do the research and it's not a huge part of their portfolio. But to think you're going to retire on it and think you're going to be able to beat the market, I, I think it's extremely difficult um, to, to do that. And then you have all the ups and downs in the market. Um, I think that's, that's kind of tough. Um, so that's probably, you know, one big mistake that I made. The other one I think I mentioned earlier about this rental property. I think I think rental real estate is a is a great way to build wealth. Um, I don't think it's for everybody. Uh, it definitely it certainly isn't for me. I'm just not cut out to be a, a landlord. And there's just I would say, you know, in and I just didn't know much about evaluating rental properties. So I had a duplex and um, it probably wasn't in the best area. I probably didn't get the best deal on it. I probably bought it at the worst time in 2007. And um, it was just a, a nightmare. So, you know, if, if rental real estate is, is where someone has their heart, I'd say, you know, make sure you really love rental real estate and love being a landlord because, there are headaches that come with it, but uh, that was probably one of the things that uh, definitely. If I if I look back, I kind of wish I never went down that route. Um, just knowing who I am, um, it just didn't make sense for me. Cool. Where can people find you or get a hold of you? Yeah, probably through the blog. I I, I don't. I started the blog just because I, I I didn't find a whole lot of information about high net worth families with or high net worth uh, families. Yeah, with or large families. Um, and uh, so I just thought I'd put something together and. Uh, People tend to ask me a lot about finances. I have not passionate about it. I talk a lot about it. I, I do some teaching on the side um, at local churches and things like that. So I thought I have a lot to share. Um, I didn't realize how much it takes to <laughs> maintain a blog. And I started at a, around a time where I started a new employer. So so just getting onboarded with a new employer just consumed a lot of time. So I haven't had a whole lot of chance to to update it. But it's still active. And so people can reach me through the blog. Cool. Um, you know, through the contact uh, information. Yeah. Well, one last question from our from our audience: What what roughly has has your savings rate been over the course of your working life? So my wife and I roughly make the same right now. I probably make a little bit more now that she went part time, but we save all of hers. So it's probably around forty percent, four zero. But that's actually when you include kind of what I save in my four hundred one k and my. My mega backdoor Roth IRA account—it's probably about fifty percent. So it's pretty—it's pretty significant right now. It, it hasn't always been that way, but um, probably averages around fifty percent right now. And and was it about that when before you were married as well? No, I mean I probably it was probably uh, I probably maxed out my four hundred one k maybe which uh, probably around twenty twenty five percent I would save in retirement accounts as well as just you know after tax savings. Cool. 
All right, Jake, with a net worth of $3.3 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.